Psalm 51, verses 1 through 6. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, and yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. This is the word of the Lord. Are you up? New Testament scripture is Jude 1, 17 through 25. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who will divide you who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up and your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his holy, glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Christ Jesus, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So if you uh, were here last week, or really if you've been here for many of our uh, People of the Book series for this last year, Uh, you know how much I have loved uh, getting to enter into these different books. And last week it was particularly ridiculous with Esther. Um, (laughs) I really have enjoyed uh, getting to press in to some of these books. Um, Jude, however, is a little more difficult. I don't know if any of you read it in prep for the sermon, but um, it's pretty judgy and it's super confusing. Honestly, it sounds a little too much like a fire and brimstone sermon for me, uh, and that's just not my style. Um, Now, I'm only telling you about my discomfort with this because my guess is that a lot of you can relate. Um, For some of you, the judginess of books like Jude might make you wonder about this whole Christianity thing altogether. 
I find it um, hard to explain this, but hopefully you'll be able to track. Uh, for me, when I step away from scripture uh, and I'm, I'm just not in it as regularly as I should be, I start to see the whole of it um, as if it's all judgy and confusing. Uh, it's like it, the whole thing gets distorted for me. Um, and it makes it hard to approach the Bible at all. I don't know if any of you have experienced that, but um, what has been really great about this series is that it's been able to undo some of that like weirdness for some of us um, as we look at each of the books in turn. But I think Jude threatens to like snap that old picture of scripture right back in place. Um, I was not excited to preach on it this week. <laughs> but as it always, always turns out... Um, one of the really lovely things about being a preacher is that I have to sit with that kind of discomfort um, until it bears some fruit. And it always does. Uh, the pressure of the ever-approaching Sunday morning uh, turns out to be a real gift. Um, <laughs> my Word document for this sermon is called, Jude is the Worst. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But it turns out I actually kind of like it now. Um, you know, and I've decided that it's probably best that we don't always get along with every part of Scripture so easily. Um, because it means that the Scriptures are still working on us. That discomfort is a place of growth. Uh, the Bible is so multifaceted, right? It's 66 books with almost as many authors written over thousands of years from different countries and communities and cultures. And there's a danger in that, that with so much diversity and so much distance from our present moment, uh, there's a danger that we might be able to make our faith into whatever it is we want it to be. We might just be able to pick out the pieces that we want and shape a faith that makes us comfortable, that justifies whatever it is we feel like doing. Well, this week, Jude scared me away from that pretty thoroughly, and I think it's for the best. For those of you who haven't read it yet, um, yet, uh, get those stickers. If you don't have a sticker chart, get one from the office. You're starting a little late, but you can still do it. Um, <laughs> Jude is a very short, very urgent letter to a particular community um, under particular circumstances that we know very little about. Um, but it's about some people who are, whose teaching and actions are a danger to the church. Um, I gave you the easiest part of it as the reading this morning because I was still quite uncomfortable with it when I chose the reading. Um, but the bulk of the letter is a warning to these false teachers in the gravest of terms. Verse 11 says, Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have, destroyed, they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Um, and then verse 13, they are wild waves of the sea foaming up, their shame, up in their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Like that's intense. Um, and I just prefer to talk about love. Uh, <laughs> You know, that kind of language makes me uncomfortable. But, and what makes Jude especially difficult, I think, is that it is so obscure. 
Like you heard in that, those two verses I read, references to Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Uh, hopefully you at least caught, like know what one of those is. Um, they're all Old Testament references. And respectively, they have to do with envy, greed, and rebellion. But Jude expects his readers to just understand with no explanation. Um, and he doesn't stop with the Old Testament. Verse 9 says, But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare condemn him for slander. Uh, I hope that should strike you as weird. Uh, hopefully you recognize that it's not part of the Bible. Um, he's quoting from the Testament of Moses, which was a popular Jewish book at the time. And he also quotes, Jude also quotes from the book of First Enoch, which hopefully you all also know is not part of the, our Bible. Um, Jude is quoting from the books that everybody was reading at the time. You know, like we quote from other books in our sermons. It's not unlike that. Now we have the text of the Testament of Moses and First Enoch, so we can learn about what Jude was talking about. Um, but even if you read those stories, it's still pretty tough to figure out exactly what the false leaders in this church were doing. Like, why is Jude so riled up? Like, we just don't really know. Like, we don't know who the book was written to, really. We don't know when it was written or what was happening in the church or who the false leaders are. Like, that's a lot of obscurity. It has something to do with people using the gospel to their own advantage, stepping out of their rightful place, rejecting authority, and using the gospel to justify their bad behavior. Um, and initially, I found the obscurity of it really nerve-wracking. I spent a lot of the week worrying that Jude was talking about me. Again, I'm telling you all this because I think, I th my guess is that a number of you um, can identify with it. I know a number of you are going through some measure of deconstruction of your childhood faith. Um, for me, my faith has changed a lot since I was a young Christian. And instead of having like a tiny angel and a tiny devil on my shoulders, it seems like I have a tiny preacher from my childhood who just yells condemning stuff at me all the time. He says, um, I've thrown away the Bible and that I'm just being self-serving in how I read it and that as a woman I shouldn't be preaching at all, among other things. <laughs> And I frequently have to slow myself down and say, like, okay, are these accusations true? Um, well, we're doing a series on the Bible. We've been doing it for over a year, so I'm going to guess I have not thrown it out. Um, is it wrong for me to preach? I don't think so. You know, I just think they got that one wrong. I think Jesus and, like, they being the men of our Christian tradition. <laughs> I think Jesus and Paul and others elevated women, called them into leadership. And I think I'm called here. But faced with the harsh words of Jude, my little shoulder preacher was just having a field day. He kept asking, what if this book is about you? And for a long time, I just like resisted the accusations, tried not to pay attention. Um, and I didn't want to preach about it because what if it is about me and how can I do that? In verse 4, Jude describes the false teachers saying they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality 
and in so doing, they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Now, I believe in a big gospel. My faith finds focus in the goodness of God, on the absolute wonder that God's love would be so over the top that God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, would come to us in the form of a helpless baby, be so humble as to eat meals with us, to wash dirty feet, and then to die with us even while we were God's enemies. All of that just floors me. And it means that God's love is so much bigger than we can understand. It means that there is grace available in every direction for anything. It means that we should ground everything everything on the fact that God is so incredibly for us that we can't even fathom such a love. But then, says my shoulder preacher, what if Jude is about you and your big gospel just becomes a license for immorality? And truth be told, my tendency is to just avoid books like Jude because they don't, like, jive so well with my, like, love message. Um, friends, that is not wise. <laughs> don't, don't follow my example. Um, you know, and I've been saying this through this series. The answer to your problems with the Bible is not less Bible, but more. And it holds true with Jude. Uh, my spiritual director, a uh, fountain of wisdom that she is, suggested that instead of pushing against the questions that Jude was asking, I should lean into them and ask them of myself for real. And here, I think, is the big question that Jude puts before us. Are you submitted to Jesus? Are you submitted to Jesus or are you making your own way? And we need Jude to ask this question. In some way, the difficulty pinpointing exactly the behavior in question might be a gift to us because it forces us to examine ourselves. Am I submitted to Jesus? In whatever behavior, in whatever teaching, in whatever things I am doing and saying, am I submitted to Jesus? Because the grace of God is indeed bigger than we can imagine. But Jude reminds us that we may very well be tempted to take advantage of it. That instead of being awed and humbled by the incredible kindness of our God, that God would reach down to us in this way. Instead of responding in kind, emptying ourselves as Jesus did, living lives of humility and love, we might just be tempted to let the grace puff us up, to make God smaller and try and put God in our pocket like the false teachers that in Jude's community are doing. We might start to use the gospel for our own advantage, thinking maybe that we're in control now. God will do whatever we want. We might try and make this incredible grace into an excuse for us to do whatever rather than the call to love that it actually is. We may be tempted to forget what grace is for. 
that it is not to free us to chase after our own pleasure, our own comfort, or our own happiness even. It is for us to be reconciled to God and to one another. It is to return us to the love that we were made for, that we might find ourselves not in a freedom that does whatever it wants, but that in a freedom that helps us to love, that our lives in this world might be cruciform, shaped like the cross. The gospel, the grace that we receive from God, is so that we might learn to live as we were meant to, humble, surrendered to God as the creatures that we are, giving, giving ourselves, giving of ourselves as Jesus did. And in this downward movement, we might be surprised to find more than the trite happiness of endless consumption and sexual escapades, but that we might find the deep down joy of God that rises up even in the midst of suffering, that can lay down its life for its friend, that can wash smelly, dirty feet for the sake of Jesus, that will go to the cross for the joy set before us, that is submitted always to a God of love, a God who empties God's own self for us. And returning to this way of being, returning to this God, is an everyday, every moment activity. As we bring every part of our lives under the lordship of Jesus, this is the, this is the life of a Christian. Jude's passion his harsh words are because he wants to keep the gospel as the gospel. And all the strong language is directed at those who would distort it into another tool of power and coercion, of selfishness and acquisition that would use the words and life of Jesus to put them above others rather than under. And you know what? As much as Jude's style doesn't jive with mine so much, I can get behind that message. Um, it's sometimes, I've heard this from many of you, and I think it too sometimes, it is sometimes hard to be a Christian right now. And one of the reasons that it is so difficult is exactly the reason that Jude is so upset. That there are teachers who have entered into our communities and have used their positions of leadership, even the words of scripture, to bolster their own power and image, and to do whatever they wanted. And like Jude warns in verse 10, those leaders are often destroyed by their own behaviors. And we've seen it so many times. You know, I think of Rabbi Zacharias, who had this huge following, was so well-trusted, but in secret, he was using the words of scripture and his own position as a minister of God to abuse people. He was using the gospel for his own pleasure and satisfaction. And there have been so many leaders like him who we have trusted. And they have been revealed to be liars, abusers, self-indulgent, manipulative, rejecting authority over them. And it has been awful 
to feel betrayed by so many Christian leaders who we trusted. Sometimes it's enough to make you wonder about the whole thing. But Jude was warning us about them. Telling believers not to be surprised that people like that would sneak into the church. It has been foretold, he says, don't be thrown by it. It's not a surprise. Jude's harsh words are for those teachers, but he gives very pastoral advice for those whose faith is threatened by them. Pray in the Spirit, he says. Stay obedient. Keep yourselves in the love of God even as God keeps you. Be merciful to those who doubt. And even to those false teachers who cause those doubts, he commands people to show mercy as well. There is no closed door. But do not get sucked in by what they are doing. Um, Yesterday, Tony and I uh, attended a funeral, virtually, um, for one of our professors from seminary. His name was Don Lewis. And just as we were listening to uh, the different people speak at the funeral, it just became so clear to me what Jude was protecting. Don Lewis was a saint. He was not flashy. He wasn't, like, good-looking or super charming. He wasn't even, like, the most compelling teacher. He was fine. But it wasn't like we all loved him because of those things. But his life was a mustard seed in the kingdom of God. Tony would tell you um, that Don Lewis taught Tony how to be a pastor. That Don taught Tony that God loved him. And God didn't do it through clever arguments or great advice, but through a gentle presence. You know, I think, the fr- I might be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure the first time they had a real conversation, it was because Don Lewis just showed up at Tony's front door and invited him to go for a walk with him and his dog. Um, and we were both like, that was weird. Uh, <laughs> right? But like, it's such a subtle kind of courage to do something like that. And from there, Don and Tony became friends. And Don's gentle presence became a safe place for Tony to talk and to struggle and to doubt and to find his faith assured again. And Don would, he would just listen and pray for him. Years later, um, Don flew across the country to come to our wedding and then... uh, later to visit us at our first church, only for an afternoon, Uh, nothing heroic. But the crazy thing is that he did this with literally hundreds of young men. And so many of our friends knew Don in this way. So when his kids got up to speak at the funeral, I half expected them to have this like tinge of resentment about how much he'd given to his students. But they spoke of the same gentle encouragement and presence. Nothing flashy, just consistent love. At one point in the funeral, one of the speakers, who is one of these many men, who it's not an exaggeration to say Don's life had had transformed him. Don's love had been a transformative presence for him. 
So he was speaking and he said, he said, it's so funny. Now that he's died, it's finally getting out all that Don did to care for so many people. People are starting to see who he really was. It's like an anti-scandal. <laughs> and I just love that. Like, what a witness that this man's life was so quiet and so generous that what came out about him was not this secret debauchery, but a secret kindness given to so many. There were hundreds of people, uh, there were 275 viewing with us and hundreds of people present. Again, for this man who was not flashy. And person after person talked about his humble friendship and how it had transformed them. And I just kept thinking, that is what it looks like to be shaped by the gospel. It turns out I'm with Jude in hating anything that would turn our faith from the faith of Don Lewis into the showy, profitable faith of some of those notable celebrity preachers who have gone down in flames. Don's life was shaped by the cross, not the need for notoriety or fame or respect. He was very aware of his own frailty, and he gave this seemingly small gift of presence and prayer consistently. And listening to his life retold yesterday, knowing its impact on Tony and so many others, it didn't make me want to be as cool as Don, or as well-dressed, or as famous, or as wise. It made me want to press into Jesus. Just to learn to submit myself to Jesus and be shaped by that love. Because that is what the gospel does when we sit under it. It's not about making us perfect or giving us some platform or fantastic purpose. It's about returning us to who we are. Teaching us how to love and how to die. We are made by love, for love, and through love that we might know the God who is love. And while we turn away from that, fall short of it all the time, misstep, make mistakes, the work of Jesus means that we will never stop being welcomed back into that love, no matter what. And so we submit ourselves again and again, each day, in every moment, to this love that saves us, and we find ourselves saved. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, may you shape us to be like you. that um, though maybe we wouldn't even see it, that the kingdom would be evident um, to others in us. That we would give not out of duty or guilt, um, but out of a love that has transformed us.
and that we would always return to find your grace. Lord, may we know you. May um, we continually bring our our lives under, under your lordship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.